Would you like to accelerate your career and reach your full potential in just minutes a day? Welcome to the LeadX Show with New York Times bestselling author and Inc. 500 entrepreneur, Kevin Cruz. Hey everybody, Kevin Cruz here. Welcome to another episode of the LeadX Leadership Show, where we are helping you to stand out and to get ahead at work. We've got another powerful episode today. It's the first time I'm interviewing a legend in the leadership world, in the author speaker world. We end up talking about influence and he's going to share five secrets to genuine influence. We talk about influence and persuasion. We talk about tips for anybody who wants to become an author or a speaker. And uh, it's just really packed short, tight episode. Before I dive into that, I hope all of you have had a chance to grab my new book, Great Leaders Have No Rules. Why do I say that? Because rules, every time we bump into a rule, we take away the opportunity to make a choice, to make a decision. And when that happens, it becomes your company, not my company. I didn't make that rule. This is clearly your company and it takes down my ownership. All these rules, which were created with good intentions to protect the organization from the 1%, maybe 3% of knuckleheads that are doing things wrong, but then it disengages 97% of the others. So I say, get rid of the rules. We have no rules. And instead, take your values, use them as anchors. Talk about how the values can become guardrails for behavior. And then talk about these values, talk about these guardrails in your interviewing process, in your onboarding process, in your one-on-ones, in your coaching. If somebody messes something up and they dress inappropriately or they abuse the expense account or they want to take too many vacation days, because I don't have rules for any of that in my company, never have. For 30 years, we've never had those kind of rules. If someone does something dumb that you would normally say, well, that would have been a violation of the rule, that's called a teachable moment, a coachable moment. Great leaders have no rules. And hey, if you already bought it, read it, liked it, even if you didn't like it. I hope you'll hop onto Amazon and leave an honest review. Takes like two minutes. Click some stars, write a couple sentences, and you're good to go. Now, my guest today speaks all over the world. He's on the road nonstop. He's in such demand for years because he's speaking about the topic of being a go-giver, as well as what he calls genuine influence. He has sold over a million copies of his books. His original Go-Giver book has sold over 900,000 copies. It's been published in a bazillion different languages. Yes, there are a bazillion different languages out there, in case you didn't know. His newest book is The Go-Giver Influencer, which might just be his most important book of all. How can you persuade? How can you negotiate? How can you create win-win? How can you talk to people who might have a different political view, business view, might be on the other side of you in so many ways, and how can you negotiate something where everybody actually feels good about it? My guest, of course, the author of The Go-Giver, is Bob Berg. Bob, welcome to The LeadX Show. Thank you, Kevin. Great to be with you. Congratulations on the early success of your book. I keep hearing about it and seeing it, and I've got my copy with me and just uh, really so, so happy for you. 
No, I, I appreciate you saying that. It has been a, a crazy week and um, means a lot coming from you. We've sort of been online friends for a while. We have a lot yeah. of mutual friends, but this is the first time we're, we're chatting. And I always like to start, I call them my selfish questions, things that are curious on, on my mind, uh, although we'll, we'll certainly turn uh, to your new book in a second. And Bob, I, I read in your introduction, I mean, you, you've sold literally millions of copies. You're a legend among authors. You are a legend among speakers. So many people like look up to you and what you've done with your speaking career. But how did you get started? Because I think I read somewhere that you actually started in television. Yeah, I did. I, I started as a radio sportscaster and then a television news anchor. Uh, but I really uh, was not very good. <laughs> it wasn't long before I, uh, I like to say, graduated into sales. And, uh, and it's funny because when I first got into sales, I wasn't very good at it because I had no training. And, and the company where I first started working, let's say their training was negligible at best. <laughs> and, and so I floundered for a while um, until I was in a, a bookstore. And this is about 40 years ago now. And uh, I came across... Uh, books by Zig Ziglar and Tom Hopkins. And I really didn't even know there was such a thing as how to in terms of selling. I didn't, didn't know that was, I had not been exposed to it. But uh, got their books. I, I started just immersing myself in them. And uh, within a very short period of time, my sales began to really go through the roof. And it just showed me it was that it was nothing more than having a system, a methodology. And to this day, I, I define a system personally as the process of predictably achieving a goal based on a logical and specific set of how-to principles. In mm. other words, the key is predictability. If, if, right. it's, uh, if it's been documented that by doing A, you'll get the desired results of B, then you know you just simply need to do A and continue to do A. You'll eventually get the desired results of B. So um, that kind of got me started. And I, I, then I began to really, I, it opened up a whole new world for me because I saw that sales was really about personal development. So I began to get all the books and all the tapes. That's how long ago this was, Kevin, tapes, not, <laughs> not, CD, not you know, uh, and uh, really began to, to um, I really enjoyed it <laughs> and eventually worked my way up to sales manager and then started teaching people to how to do what was working for me and uh, eventually began speaking and making a business out of it. Yeah, that that's great. And I certainly remember the days of, of tapes. And in fact, I'm in uh, my home office, which is in my basement. And if I really want to do something crazy, I would run two storage uh, halls down to grab my old Brian Tracy tapes and uh, Tom Hopkins and certainly Zig and, and all the rest. And, you know, th this has just been on my mind a lot um, lately. Like, I, I feel like maybe I'm becoming, you know, my father, like get off my lawn, you know, ki kind of thing. Because, I sort of feel like, is it like we had a growth mindset? We were young and we wanted to learn. We wanted to succeed in our careers. So we would use our own time, use windshield time to listen to tapes and get better. And do you think, I mean, the 20-something-year-olds the today, is it the same percentage today as it was back in our day that are, are learning and are eager? Or is uh, something a little different these days? It's probably the same percentage, basically, because I don't think human nature changes, mm -hmm. but I would say that because you and I are so aware of it, because to us, personal development is such big parts of our lives, right. we kind of see that with a filter. And so, you know, when people are not as, as eager as we were to just right. grab that information and start, right, you know, we probably see it as, 
more people than, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, we notice all the ones who aren't grabbing <laughs> <That's right>. for it. <laughs> Why aren't you grabbing this stuff? <laughs> uh, I love that. And so it was, it was through your success personally in sales that I assume at some point you decided, hey, I can start teaching others about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I, you know, it's funny, I went to a, um, and this is while I was still sales manager of that one company, I went to a um, seminar and there was a guy selling um, tapes, which I, of course, I bought the tapes. I'm right. like, probably like you, if someone <laughs> was selling the tapes or said, I'm buying it, right? And, and uh, at the back he, uh, of, the, uh, of the series, he said something like, uh, if you want to make extra money by learning how to sell these tapes, call our office. Aww. So I did. And they taught me how to go out and do, you know, free, pro free programs, 20, 25 minute talks for every civic club group, organization, anybody who would have me speak and how to then do the thing selling the tapes. And I did. And I think from what they told me, if I, I don't know personally, but they, from what they told me, I was their leading tape distributor in the, yeah. in the country. So, um, but again, I just followed a system. But eventually, I really wanted to kind of do my own stuff. And, and uh, so I, I did that and started my own business speaking. Now, you've, uh, again, these are my, my, my selfish questions as, a, as an author. Um, you've, you've written both uh, nonfiction and business fables, right? And you really, of course, uh, broke through in a huge way with the Go-Giver uh, fable. That, right? I mean, that's, that's the biggest book by far. Oh, without question. And that's really due to John David Mann's ability to spin a tale and write a story because I'm a how-to guy. I'm step one, step two, step three. Okay. Uh, in other words, I'm boring. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, well, I was going to ask you about your collaboration because, uh, and I won't name them, but most of the business fables that I've read, uh, uh, they don't do it for me. Um, they, they, they don't read like compelling fiction. It's usually, you know, there's not a lot of plot or character and it's just two people talking to get the how-to information out. Your, all of your go-giver books, I mean, they could stand alone as interesting stories. And I even chuckled that like in the go-giver influencer, uh, the writers have a technique called the ticking time bomb where there's some event that's time bound to kind of ratchet up pressure. I'm like, there's a ticking time bomb. The bank is after him. Like, right. These are really well written. So tell me about your collaboration. That's John. Believe <laughs> me. Believe me. Um, well, it's really easy to, to collaborate with, with John because he's such a great writer that there's not even an issue as far as, you know, should I be trying to, you know, outdo him or, or to, it's not going to happen, you know, or not even outdo him, but, but, um, do the heavy lifting like he does. It just, right? And so um, what happened was I had a book out called, uh, for this one, for the Go-Giver Influencer, which is the last one in the, in the series. I had a book out called Adversaries and Two Allies, which was a how-to book on how to, basically how to deal with others, how to deal with difficult people in such a way that you get the results you want while making them feel good about themselves, the situation about you. And we took a lot of that and then, and, and John, of course, weaves it into this amazing story and does the whole thing. So that was really, of all the collaborations, there was a lot of source material there um, to begin with. And so what we do is, is typically when we write, we have an idea, we go through everything, what we want the story basically to say. John will write a scene, and then he sends it to me. And we go back and forth on it. And I mean, we wow. go back and forth on every line of every letter of every this. How will this be interpreted? What will this? And I mean, we just. So, and you know what's so cool about John? The guy's so brilliant, okay? 
but he's so humble mm. that he never it never bothers him. He always acts like it's the greatest thing in the world that you made a correction. Mm. You know, and the guy has like more knowledge, you know, more smarts in his little finger than I have in my entire body. So, hey, he's a joy to work with. Well, you seem to be uh, mirroring the humbleness because you say, you know, that's all that's all him on the writing. And yet you're going through scene by scene, giving notes back and forth. Like I, I <laughs> don't take this the wrong way, but I would have thought like you'd say, hey, here's the five big lessons I'd like to convey <laughs> in an entertaining way. Let me know when you got a draft and I'll take a look. <laughs> at it. And you're you're involved every every step in the process. Yeah, it really is a true collaboration. And uh, wow. I think John really enjoys that because he's worked with people where he's been, you know, even the ghostwriters, there's a lot of books he's ghostwriter on. And so he yeah. can't even say that it right. was, that it's his thing. But he'll say that that basically is what it is. People will give him a basic thing and say, okay, go ahead. And they don't even proofread the thing. You know, it's yeah. so, so uh, he, and I'm only saying that because you wouldn't know the names. Sure, you know, sure. Names of who they are. But that, um, and, and so he, you know, he loves the idea that it's really a collaboration with us. Right. Right. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, it's a, it's a lot of fun. And, and, um, adv- if you had advice for uh, people out there who are maybe where you were a long time ago, maybe they're really successful in what they're doing. Maybe it's in sales. Uh, maybe they on the side are starting to talk or they're, they're winning awards at Toastmaster or whatever. And they're like, Hey, I want to think about this writer, speaker, uh, uh, thought leader program, where would they start? Should they try writing a book? Should they do something else? I don't think it ever hurts to, to try writing a book because really when you think about it, you, and John quotes another author and I, I can't think of who the author is who said that, but uh, who said it, but uh, John often quotes this person who, who said something like, I write to find out what I'm thinking or I write to find out what I think. So to me, it's always a great idea to write, even if it's for yourself, to find out really how you're thinking, what you're thinking, where you are right now. And, you know, you don't have to write a big book. You can write a, a, a mini book. You can write a booklet. You can write, you know right. what I'm saying? But I think it's great to get your wisdom down on, and your thoughts and your perspective uh, down on paper. And you never know when you're going to start speaking. It will make a great positioning tool. That was why I wrote my first book, Endless Referrals. I didn't want to write a book. I was at a National Speakers Association convention, 26, 27, I'd been in the business for a few years, and a few of them said, Berg, if you want to take your career to the next level, get higher fees, be better positioned, make it easier to sell your services, you need to write a book. And that's why I did, so it was totally utilitarian at, at, at right. that point. Um, if someone's going to start speaking, and they want to speak and earn money from it, uh, well, they, they need to approach it as a business because it is a business just like everything else and you're selling your speaking services. And, um, and so, you know, I would say to, to, to join national speakers association, uh, get, uh, you know, books on speaking wealthy speaker 2.0 by Jane Atkinson. Uh, Lois Kramer is another one. I can't remember the name of her latest book, but it's brilliant. Uh, there's so much information out there on how to have a successful speaking business that if it's something you really want to do, but remember, just like, you know, the writing the book, as difficult as it is to me, and by the way, I don't like, and I'm not talking about when I'm working with John, that's different, but when I'm writing just a how-to book by myself, I don't like writing. I'm with I you on like that. I don't like writing books. <laughs> I like having written. Right. <laughs> okay. And still, as hard as it is, that's the easy part. Right. The tough part is going out there and selling the book, marketing the book. It's a constant, steady process, and there are how-to's as far as that goes too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So 
you know, I think it's approaching everything you do as a business and realizing that other than that kind of outlier one in 10 million who can just put something good out there and the world just kind of picks up on it and beats that path to your door. Right. That's not something you can ever depend on as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that's helpful. So Bob, again, we're here to, to highlight your newest book, The Go-Giver Influencer. And as successful and prolific as you are personally on social media, we're not talking about Instagram influencer here, right? Like right. what are we, what's the book about? How do you, how do you mean influence and persuasion? Yeah. You know, that's a, such a great question because it always begins with a premise, <laughs> right? <laughs> and, um, and when we, when uh, we look at influence on a very, very basic level, we can define influence as simply the ability to move a person or persons to a desired action, usually within the context of a specific goal. By definition, that's influence. But I don't believe that's the um, essence of influence. The essence of influence is pull. Pull as opposed to push, as mm -hmm. in the age-old question, how far can you push a rope? Mm -hmm. And the answer is not very, at least not very fast or very effectively, which is why great influencers don't push. Uh, you know, Kevin, you never hear people say, wow, that David or that Susan, she is so influential. She has a lot of push. <laughs> no, she's influential. She has a lot of pull with mm -hmm. people. That's what influence is. It's an attraction. Mm. Great influencers attract people first to themselves and then to their ideas. In the story, in the go-giver influencer, you had two people because in this one, there's two protagonists, two protégés and two mentors instead mm -hmm. of the usual one and, and one. And each of them had something the other wanted. And so it looked like it would be a business marriage made in heaven. Mm -hmm. okay? It was anything but that. And what it was, was they were so, they were both good people, right. but they were so focused on themselves and their needs that they just were repelling each other. Instead of attracting each other, they were repelling each other and they really couldn't understand why until they met their respective mentors and learned more about the process. Yeah. And, and I, um, I, I always struggle uh, uh, doing doing an author interview about like fiction because I don't want to give anything away. But, but part of what you talked yeah. about right there is and what made this um, the story compelling. And also, I, I thought uh, uh, just very unique is that, again, it's uh, without getting into the details. I mean, the book really opens with a first sales call slash negotiation. Yeah. And it <laughs> almost could read like a fun HBR case study, you know, cause this is like, okay, here's a big business and a small business. Right. Here's a meeting and you immediately can either relate to one or the other. It wasn't like, Oh, this is the bad guy. And this is the good guy. It really kind of makes you think. And of course, as the story goes on, you really do see the, right. The two sides, which is, which mm -hmm. is part of uh, the point. And so let's, um, you know, in a short format show, we can't dive in too deeply, but Walk us through, you've got five secrets of genuine influence. Well, just give us a quick summary. Yeah, well, the first one is to master your emotions. Uh, this is so key. It really comes down to this because, you know, it, if we're ever going to be able to take a potentially negative situation or negative person and turn it into a win for everyone involved, we've got to be in control of our own emotions. Yet how often do we 
say and do the very thing that's just so counter to what we really want to accomplish. And Well, why? Why would we let our emotions get away from us and control us if we know how, how counterproductive that is? Well, because we're human beings <laughs> and we are emotional creatures. We'd like to think we're logical and to a right. certain extent, of course we are, but we're pretty emotion driven. We make major decisions based on emotion. We back up those emotional decisions with logic. We rationalize, which means we tell ourselves rational lies. We do it all the time. <laughs> so what we're not saying is, you know, forego your emotions or deny your emotions. First, that would be incongruent with human nature. It, it's not sustainable, but it's also not necessary. Emotions are a great part of life. They bring us joy. They make life worthwhile. No, um, keep your emotions, but just make sure you're the master of your emotions as opposed to your emotions being the master of yours. Our great friend, leadership authority, Don Scumachi puts it, take your emotions along for the ride, but make sure you are driving the car. Mm, mm. So very important. Yeah, no, the, the, and, I, and I love that. And of course, um, the, the LeadX audience knows that, uh, you know, we, we love language in terms of phrase. And I like that, uh, you know, when we rationalize, we rational, <laughs> we're telling ourselves rational lies. I, I just love that. I wanted to or underscore that for our listeners. And, and so master your emotions is really the first step. Mm -hmm. what, what's, what comes next? Well, it's step into the other person's shoes. Now, which sounds really easy because it's, it's an old saying, right? Step mm -hmm. into that, you put yourself in the other person's shoes. And you think, well, maybe it's not so easy when you consider that most of us have different sized feet. <laughs> so we literally can't step into their shoes. We figuratively can't step into their heads because we're not them. We come from different world, different belief systems, different ways of seeing things, different, right? And so, so what happens is, and as human beings, we tend to think that other people see the world the same basic way we do. It's not true. It's mm -hmm. not true. And conflict is typically the result of two or more people seeing the same basic thing from different viewpoints, okay? So... How do you step into their shoes? Well, you, you ask questions. You don't assume you know what they're thinking because you probably don't, okay? And so, and they don't know what you're thinking, but they don't know that they don't know what you're thinking. At least you know that you don't know what they're thinking. So you ask questions and then of course you listen. Uh, listen, um, not just with your, your ears. That's the surface listening most of us do. That's listening in order to speak. It's letting them have their two cents as long as we can get in our 10 cents, okay? <laughs> um, as one of the mentors says, listens, listen not just with your ears, listen with your eyes, listen with your posture, listen with the back of your neck. In other words, put your entire being into listening. Now, when you do this, two great things happen. One is you really do start to understand this person. You've stepped into their shoes and you now know. The other thing, though, is this person feels listen to. Mm. They feel acknowledged, they feel heard, they feel understood. The trust in you, the like in you grows and now you've got a whole different dynamic. Yeah, it's so powerful and and I think as you said, you know, some people will be easy or quick to quit, you know, step into other people's shoes or we've got to practice active listening. But the way you really describe that, I mean, it, it's really taking it seriously as a, as a way to seek to understand. And it reminds me of, uh, uh, I had earlier on as a guest, uh, Chris Voss, the former FBI oh. hostage negotiator. Great wow. guy, right? And he spends so much time on this. I mean, he's literally negotiating, you know, with, with 
potential murders. In some cases they were, and he would talk about the little techniques of just, you know, parroting back and doing things, but not as a tech, as a trick, as truly listening, you know, as truly listening. And that can change the dynamic when they feel heard or the, you know, the, the bank, yeah. you know, robber, whoever's, when they feel heard, everything changes. So it's not a, just a trick and it's not the, the normal active listening stuff. It's taking it to a, a mm. deeper level. Yeah. And one of my favorite from the book <clears throat> that the coaches in the book talk about is the importance of setting the frame. Mm -hmm. And I want you to talk a little bit about that, including how do we set the frame that's not in sort of a contrived, manipulative way? Because I think some salespeople and or when they negotiate, it's, let me sit in the chair that's higher than the other person's chair. Let me put the sun behind me so the sun's in their eyes. And, and it sort of feels a bit contrived. And well, it's a, it's a manip that's a manipulative frame. That's a manipulative frame. So tell me, what do you mean by set the frame? Okay, so, so, so a frame, by definition, a frame is the foundation from which everything else takes place. Thus, when the frame has been set properly, you're really 80 to 90% of the way um, to what you want. Now, let me give you very quickly an example of my, the favorite frame setting I ever saw in my life. Had nothing to do with business, yet it has everything to do with it. I was at a local Dunkin' Donuts where I live, and in the store there was a little um, toddler, probably about two, two and a half years old. He's running around the restaurant, and his parents call him over to the table. He starts to walk over when suddenly he takes a spill. He falls on the floor. He, he didn't hurt himself, but you could tell he was shocked. He was mm. very surprised. This was not in his realm of experience. So the, the first thing he does, of course, is what? He looks at his parents. Mm. He looks to the two people he trusts most in order to get their interpretation of the event. Okay? Now, I truly believe that had the parents begun to, to panic and get upset and start, oh no, are you okay, my little baby, oh, right? He'd have started to cry. Right. But they just handled it so beautifully. Uh, they walked over quickly, but very calmly, very serenely. They had smiles on their face. They, they started to, you know, applaud and laugh and, oh, what a good trick. That looks mm -hmm. like so much fun. Well, the little boy just started to laugh. It's great. What parents did is they set um, a very productive frame from which he could operate. Mm -hmm. Now, we can do that whenever we meet someone, not by, as you said, taking the highest chair or sitting with our thing or the whatever, but with a simple smile, a nice handshake, looking at them now, oh, that's fine. We can all do that. The question is, what do you do when someone else comes to the table in an already negatively set frame? Now, we need to reset the frame. Mm. Uh, can I give you an example of in, in the sales vernacular? It's yeah. An easy one to, uh, let's say you're about to do a presentation uh, for Mary, who's the prospective customer. Uh, but Mary seems kind of defensive on edge. She kind of lets you know she's not some easy mark and is right. right? And so, you know, who knows what's going on in her world. And you can't really, in this case, ask, you know, so-and-so, you just got to kind of go with it sort of. But let's look at, but that's a very uh, kind of an antagonistic frame. It's a defensive frame. It's right. a frame that if you respond to that frame, right? Because remember, if, you, if she sets the frame and you go with that frame, now it's you against her and no one's going to win, right? Because she's not going to end up buying. Mm 
So she's not going to get the benefit of your product and you're not going to get the benefit of, of helping someone and having a sale. So let's reset the frame. Okay. We might say something like, you know, Mary, um, while we've been able to help a lot of people through this product, uh, whether or not it's the right fit for you, the right answer for you, we simply can't know without exploring deeper and determining whether it meets your specific needs. So please know our conversations for both of us to discover that. And if it does, great. If not, that's okay too. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. So now we've totally um, readjusted that frame, right? We've now reset the frame from one of two adversaries to one of two allies who are looking for the same thing to determine what's best for her. Yeah, that's, um, that's fantastic. I uh, um, had a little bit of a breakthrough in this area, the day job company LeadX selling uh, software. And, you know, my, my old school approach would have been a more traditional B2B sales approach. But more recently, maybe it's just also being a little older, a little more patient. Um, I have found better results by almost anti-selling. I mean, the, the old Tom Hopkins approach would be like, Kevin, you're not, where's the clothes? You're not closing hard enough kind of thing. My, um, I, I set up the frame or, or, or start the, the conversation saying, you know, we're, we're looking to get feedback. And, and my goal at the end is just to say, is there enough interest to, to further do a trial with some of your people, et cetera? If not, you know, that's, that's fine too. And it's almost like taking what they think is going to be the close or the hard sell off the table, I think helps them to, to open up a little bit and, uh, and relax through the process. Yeah. Well, whenever you give someone an out or a back door, that's very important because human nature says no one wants to feel trapped. Oh uh, yeah. People want autonomy. Mm -hmm. And so we always want to make sure they always understand that it's their choice. Mm -hmm. I call this the law of the out or back door, which simply says the bigger the out or back door you give someone to take, the less they'll feel the need to take it. Oh, that's great. I like that. So after setting the frame, you say communicate with tact and empathy. Yeah. You know, my, my dad has always defined tact as the language of strength. Mm. And I've always enjoyed that because it does take strength to operate with tact, to, uh, as Zig Ziglar used to say, respond instead of react, right? <laughs> to not just shoot back that nasty email when you've received an email or someone online who says something political you really disagree with and to just make a comment, but, but to instead really think first. Really think first and, and ask yourself in that little nanosecond that we really have to ask yourself is, is how I'm about to answer, is it going to add value or detract? Is it going to build mm -hmm. this person up or tear them down? Is it going to add to or is it going to, right? And so, uh, so yeah, I, I think tact is very much the language of a, a strong, a mighty person. Now, tact itself is really the ability to communicate an idea to someone that they may otherwise not enjoy, right? Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. So in a way that not only are they defensive toward you uh, uh, and resistant to your idea, but they're open to you and they're more receptive of your idea. Empathy is what really makes tact possible because it, it makes it so you understand the need for it. And empathy, which by definition is the identification of or uh, identification with or uh, vicarious experiencing of another person's feelings. Well, 
you know, it's sort of just when we were talking earlier, you don't know what's inside another person's head. You really don't know what's inside their heart because you're not them and you haven't necessarily experienced what they have. I don't think empathy means you need to know how they feel. Mm. What I believe empathy means is that you communicate that you, while you may not understand how they feel, right. you understand they're feeling something. Yeah. And that yeah. this something is distressing to them and that you are there to help work through it. No, that's, that's great. And then to me, perhaps the most powerful one uh, for all areas of life, uh, let go of having to be right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, yeah. And, and, you know, people say, well, what do you mean? This is influence. Aren't you supposed to be right? Don't you want to be right? Of course. Absolutely. We're human beings. And not only do we want to be right, we're going to prepare to be right. And we're going to do what it means though, really, is that you're losing, you lose your attachment. You're letting go of that attachment to having to be right or to make that other person wrong or to have to be a hundred percent right. And when we do this, it actually will make us more influential, not less, because we're able to go into learner's mode. Mm -hmm. It means we understand that we may not know everything about this, and so we open up our mind to opposing ideas. Now, that doesn't mean you have to agree with those ideas, right. or that you don't, or that you do. It just means you're open to them, and you're going to consider them. This is directly opposite of the person who, you know, it's sort of like, well, my mind's made up. Don't confuse me with the facts. <laughs> and you see that so often. And not only can that person never know any more than what they already know, people like that typically what they, as the old saying goes, what they do know probably isn't even true. <laughs> right? right? Right. So there's two things that happen when we let go of having to be right. One is, again, we open ourselves up to actually learning more and being right more often because we have more information. But also, this person we're dealing with, as they come to understand that, that they're dealing with some with you who's not just looking to be right for the sake of being right or looking to be right by making them wrong, mm -hmm. again, they lose their defensiveness. And and their liking for you and their trust in you grows and they're much more likely to be amenable to your ideas. Yeah, this is um, really important stuff and I, I wanna uh, highlight it uh, with a certain angle for our listeners. So in a lot of the more recent shows, I've been talking about um, personality styles and there's the five-factor model of personality, the big five, and, and one of them is agreeableness. So people who are high on agreeableness, as I am, we strive very hard to kind of keep the peace. I want you to be happy. I, I, I would not challenge you if it's going to cause any rift, whether it's in family, friends, at work. So it makes it hard for me to give solid feedback if you're on my team. But the opposite, if you're low in agreeableness, you care more about being right and facts and so-called truth. You don't really think about how other people are going to feel about it. And you don't really get triggered by negative emotion. And so in some of the, the you know, the, the work in the, the new book, you know, is just sort of giving up, giving up that need to be right um, uh, and, and realize like, hmm, on which side of that? Am I normally fighting for the case and not thinking about the people or am I thinking about the people and less about the truth? And that self-awareness can kind of help you from getting triggered in, yeah. uh, in, that, in that wrong direction. And it always begins with self-awareness. Right. Otherwise, is we have nowhere to go if we don't realize there's an issue in the first place. Yeah. And that I mean, that's like a theme, you know, throughout uh, the book, the go giver influencer, because you again, going back to that very first scene, 
it turns out, for example, the one protagonist really didn't understand how the other person was setting up a frame in that very thing. He didn't have awareness of the situation or the other person. But then deeper down, there's this self-awareness that's growing in the, in the characters yeah. uh, throughout as well. So I got one more. You know, you say there's one sentence that is guaranteed to prevent misunderstandings. It's got to be powerful, Bob. What is it? Well, it has to do with the uh, the second um, principle about stepping into the other person's shoes, and this is just again realizing that we don't that we often think we see the world differently, and that also has to do with the way we define certain mm. terms. So let's in this case take the example of a um, a team meeting within a, okay. a, a company, okay? And it's a team of four people. And the team leader, Pat, says to everyone, calls everyone on her team together Monday morning and says, uh, hey, there's been a change with the client, with this, with our new client. Uh, the, 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 the work on this project needs to be in as soon as possible. Got it? And everybody goes, okay. Everybody breaks. So it's Wednesday afternoon, end of day. She calls everyone together for their work, and only one member of her team has it. Well, why? Um, well, you'd have to ask, what does as soon as possible even mean? To this one person, he's been on her team for a while. He knows as soon as possible means drop everything, do it right away, nothing else. You've got a couple of days to get it done. To another person who's from the another team, uh, to them, their, their team leader, when they said as soon as possible, it meant, yeah, get to it soon, but get your other stuff done first. The other person on the team came from another company who, when, when his or her team leader said as soon as possible, it meant nothing. Just give it lip service and keep doing what you're doing. So you have one term uh, as soon as possible, and you've got three different definitions. Mm -hmm. Now, had one of the people on the team, let's say, said to the team leader, uh, Pat, just for my own clarification, that's the tact part, <laughs> clarification, when you say as soon as possible, is there a uh, specific day or, or time you're thinking of? And she would have said, uh, yes, Wednesday afternoon, end of the day, five o'clock. Everybody would have known. There would have, would have taken away that. Now, you th the question is, well, why didn't Pat just say it? Why wouldn't the team leader just say that? I don't know. Why do people not communicate properly. We assume everybody knows what we mean because we're, we know what we mean <laughs> and we don't. So whenever you want to avoid misunderstandings, the sentence would be, ba would be basically, you know, just for my own clarification or just so I don't mess up or just mm -hmm. make sure we're both, uh, you know, looking at the same thing. When you say X and then you'd fill in, you know, uh, you know, what exactly, or is there a specific or, you know, whatever it would be that's appropriate to make sure that their answer is now going to define what they mean. I think that's uh, incredible. And, you know, some of my other work is in the area of time management productivity. And um, uh, this is so valid in, in that area. You know, when someone, whether it's your client or your boss says it's due by the end of the week, that sounds pretty specific, but if you pause and think about it, well, is the end of the week, is that, I assume that's Friday, but is that even true? Let's say it's Friday. Does that mean Friday morning, Friday noon, Friday at 5 p.m., which is the end of the work week? If we need until Friday at midnight, is that okay? So what they're really saying is they're going to look at it Monday morning. Okay. <laughs> Client needs to look at it Monday morning. It's different than due end of the week. All of a sudden, there's a couple other days in there. Then there's the mixed messages. <laughs> it, it, deadline is absolutely Friday, but quality is more important. <laughs> 
Right. Right. So, you know, it's, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. P- pick, pick one. I don't know about two. Um, that, so that, that is just so, uh, so critical. Uh, Bob, the, I'm so curious. So are you already at work on the next in the Go-Giver series? Like what is the next thing for you? Well, every book I finish is always my very last book and I'm never doing another one again. <laughs> We're all very lucky that that hasn't been true yet. <laughs> well, thank you. that's very nice of you. But uh, so no, there's, there's nothing right now. We are working on a, um, uh, my business partner, Kathy Tajnell and I are working on an online course, actually two of them, two online video courses, one called Endless Referrals, The Go-Giver Way, and the other is Genuine Influence, The Go-Giver Way. So Brilliant. we've already done, gotten one of them done and it's in post-production. Now we're, we're writing up and doing the other one. So those are kind of the two big projects. So where can all of our listeners go to uh, follow your work? Of course, uh, get more information about your books, but also to, to hear about the courses when they become available. Uh, probably the best thing to do is to go to thegogiver.com. Uh, that's really all the, the book and information stuff. I have my speaker's site, which is Berg, B-U-R-G.com, but, but everything's also at thegogiver.com. And um, there, pretty much everything is, is right there. And, and there's a, um, uh, a resource they can get if they like called Endless Referrals the, or Endless Prospects, The Go-Giver Way, which is a, a written um, resource and, uh, they'll then be in our notification list for when we have things going on, including the release of the, um, uh, the online courses. Fantastic. And we will of course put those links in the show notes and articles and, and, uh, and all the spinoffs again, Bob, thank you for, uh, the time today, spending it with the, the lead X listeners. My absolute pleasure. I thank you. And again, uh, congratulations on, uh, on your new book and uh, may it, may it be, uh, may it benefit millions and millions and millions of people. I hope so. My friend, I, I, I look up to your, your, uh, the number of people you've been able to reach out to and help. So I'll Thanks. be, I'll be chasing you for a while. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Bob. Thank you. Bye-bye. Friends, if you like this episode of the LeadX Leadership Podcast, please take a minute, leave a rating on iTunes or Stitcher. Ratings are invaluable for attracting new listeners. And I like to convert those listeners into leaders because you know I'm on a mission to spark 100 million leaders in the next 10 years. And if you wanna become the boss everyone fights to work for and nobody wants to leave, check out the LeadX platform with Coach Amanda at leadx.org. And if you have 10 or more managers who could use some binge-worthy training, send me an email at info at leadx.org, L-E-A-D-X dot O-R-G, and we'll talk about getting you set up with a totally free pilot for those managers. See if they like it. If they don't, that's fine. We go away. Part as friends. But if they love it, you've just found yourself a new resource for them. Remember, leadership is influence. You're always leading. How are you going to lead today? <laughs>